Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Carrie Johnson. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. Today, we're joined by VP and Principal Analyst Dipanjan Chatterjee to discuss why brands need to take stances on socio-political issues. Welcome, Dipanjan. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Carrie. Thank you for inviting me. And as always, I'm delighted to be on the podcast. So Dipanjan, clearly in today's environment, brands no longer can stay neutral on socio-political issues. Staying neutral is sending a message. But why are consumers demanding brands to do more or take a stance? Yeah, Jennifer, and I think these things have changed quite rapidly. Um, If you even rewind about five years Um, you would find brands not wanting to touch these issues with a barge pole. Um, I remember even as recently as 2017, uh, a quote from the CMO of the Association for American Ad Agencies. Um, And she says that, look, um, consumers do not want brands to take a position. And in fact, we recommend that it's actually more risky for brands to take a position Um, And and it's just safer to stay on the sidelines. My, how things have changed in a few years, right? Um, You know, if you reflect on the drivers of change, uh, I think there are three in particular. First, I think the very nature of brands have changed. If you look at the top brands in the US in the year 2000, right? You're looking at brands like, ExxonMobil, you're looking at brands like Pfizer, Cisco, Citigroup, right? These are the largest brands by market cap. Very functional brands, very compartmentalized brands, right? You need to fill gas in your car, you go get some gas at the ExxonMobil station. Uh, You need to open a deposit account, you go to Citibank, right? Now, fast forward 20 years. Look at the top five brands by market cap. Google slash Alphabet, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, right? Now, you could say, hey, Dipanjan, these are tech brands, and we know sort of the technology revolution that's happened. There's a lot more to it than these guys being tech brands, right? They have become inextricable in our lives in a way that the Cisco's and the Pfizer's and the ExxonMobil's never were. Right. Think about it. These are the brands with whom um, we share our memories. These are the brands we use to connect to people. Right. We find our creative spark. You know, these brands make us laugh. They make us cry. This is very different from the brands of the 2000s. Right. Here's a simple example. Think about Amazon Alexa. Right. And think about the Echo. There are many families where the Echo sits in the dining room, right? And their children in the family at dinner will talk to this machine, right? This device is a member of the family. So we've suddenly anointed these brands with a humanness that never existed. Now, the moment you start thinking of brands as human, you have a completely different set of expectations from them, right? They, they, they're so close to you that they that you expect that they will align with you on things that matter most, right? So the first big shift has been just the completely different nature of brands and how they engage. 
The second shift has been an overall change in consumer perception, right? And, and I think we, um, you know, as a company have written about this extensively, uh, about how a values orientation has entered the brand relationship. Now, in particular on race and social justice, uh, the data that I have seen says something like 60% of consumers expect brands to take a position on racial justice. Right now, that's pretty high. Well, if you think that's high, let me give you another statistic. 60% was for all adults. So for those between 18 and 34 years of age, that number is 78%, right? So think about how, how this demographic layer, as it ripples through society, right? As we keep on adding younger people, this is going to be a, a, a requirement, right? The expectation of younger consumers is that, yes, indeed, brands need to take a position. So that's sort of the, thing, the second dimension. The third dimension, which I think is especially potent and in many ways overlooked, is the employee, right? What you hear about quite a bit is that, you know, consumers will vote with their wallets, so you have to take a stand. Otherwise, you know, um, they will go away. You lose business. Perhaps yes and no, right? I mean, you need to investigate that claim a little bit more thoroughly. The consumption decision is fairly complicated, right? Um, a few things complicated. First, there's something that you call choice compartmentalization. That's a very fancy word to say when you make a decision as a consumer, it's because of perhaps price, perhaps the product and service, perhaps the availability, something else, something else, and perhaps about how your values align with that of the brand, right? Now, depending on who you are as a person, depending on what category you're buying, this the, the, the percentage importance of each slice in this compartment changes, right? So if I'm driving by on the freeway and I want to pull over and get gas, maybe the value equation doesn't even come into play, right? It's all about convenience, right? It's also the relationship here is marked by asymmetrical information, which basically means that the brands know a lot better about what they're doing than we do right? And there is high transactions costs. So let me give you an example to bring that to life, right? Let's take an individual who wants to buy a SUV and they're choosing between a Honda and a Toyota, right? This is a very, very likely real life scenario. I would bet you my last dollar that a majority of them will not be able to identify the different value positioning of Honda versus Toyota and have that effectively enter that decision-making, right? So for all of these reasons, um, consumers do play a role, but they may not always be quite as impactful as we think they can be. For employees, it's a little bit different, right? Several things going on. You have invested essentially half your waking life in this company, right? The asymmetry in the information goes away. You're there, they're there, you're privy to, to a lot more information, right? And do you really want to associate your identity, right? Because that's what employment is. It also helps define you. 
do you want to be defined by this entity that perhaps does not believe in the things that you do, right? So this, this third push in this trifecta, the employee dimension is tremendously important in forcing brands to say something. Um, there's a, a, a few pieces of data, I think, that are illustrative here. Um, 50% of LGBTQ um, audience uh, will not work for a company or will give up the opportunity to consider a company that they do not believe is inclusive, right? That data point for um, racial and ethnic minorities is 45%, right? Here's the third data point that is equally, if not more important, right? 39% overall will not work for a company that they don't consider inclusive, right? So this is a big shift. This is not looking in the mirror and saying, hey, you don't have any anyone that looks like me, so I won't go to come work. You don't have anyone that looks like me, so I won't go to work for you, right? This is people saying, I've looked at you and you don't look anything like the society around me, right? You don't reflect society. So I'm, I don't feel comfortable being part of you, right? So to quickly summarize, um, there is the changing nature of the brand engagement. There is a much stronger demand by consumers that brands speak up. And there are employees that are demanding of their employers that there be some kind of value alignment and demonstration on their part. I feel that a natural question may be, does every company truly need to be a value-based company and take a stand? Or does it apply more to certain types of brands? Yeah, so I think there are certain, um, let's call them values for the lack of a better word, um, that are more foundational, right? I think it's legitimate to say that, look, there are um, social positions, uh, perhaps even in today's climate, political positions um, that may not be appropriate for a company to adopt, right? So, for example, um, there are probably an equal amount of people on either side of the gun control debate, right? Is that something that a brand should take a position on? And I think that's a worthwhile uh, question for brands to consider. I think certain things that become perhaps non-negotiable are more fundamental values like fairness and equality. Uh, and transparency and justice, right? So Carrie, in your example of a semiconductor company, I think if they scan the market, um, they might say, look, we don't need to come out and run an, an ad campaign about Black Lives Matter, right? That's, that's not what our customers look to us for. However, I think the employee angle still remains particularly valid. I think everyone working at that organization um, probably wants the organization to hold a certain set of values and to behave in a certain way, right? Now, you can't always please everyone, right? And, and in some sense, organizations have to make that choice, right? And there's an entire spectrum. They have to figure out where they sit on that spectrum, right? Now. 
it's easy to say that it's much more difficult to fathom where exactly you land in this relatively amorphous spectrum so you need a systematic way to do that again um you know forrester has frameworks that say look um if you sort of if you raise your hands and say you know i, I am new to this i am still sort of um you know sort of wading my way through figuring out who i need to be you need to look at it systematically and understand where you sit in the value spectrum right if you are a company that already has a strong set of values right now the the salient examples here are patagonia for example right ben and jerry's the foundational ethos of those brands have imbued them with a very strong set of values right there's no reason to suggest that a semiconductor company in nevada may not have those right i mean they're just not as salient you know maybe there's a founder with a very strong vision of what the company is about and he or she chooses to inject that brand with those sets of values right that's how they want to do business and that's absolutely right right that's absolutely fair now you could also be a large mainstream bank in the us you have 200 years of history that's 200 years too long in that you've sort of lost track of why you got started in the first place right so essentially you are a group of executives sitting in a conference room scratching your head and saying hey what are our values and how should we express them right should we mimic what our consumers want or is there something in our history something in our fabric that we hold dear and that our employees want us to hold dear so there's a sort of a systematic process of kind of wrestling with those topics and understanding where a company should land right so short answer carry is i mean you could be a semiconductor company you could be an auto parts company you could be a global consumer products company right there is a certain set of values that will be inherent in how you do business i think your employees will demand it beyond that do you need to use let's say value based marketing as a as a method as a technique to advance your brand may not be obviously there's been a lot of social unrest recently and in forthcoming research you sort of bucketed the response of brands into three categories can you maybe walk us through what you've seen to date um and you know we can go from there absolutely So there are three basic um, categories that describe brand responses to this crisis. The first one, and and most brands um, have checked the box on this, is to signal their intent. Right? Um, you know, essentially everyone has some form of communication to their customers, to their employees, to their suppliers, and the ecosystem about where they stand. Right? From a macro standpoint, just to give you a sense of how tremendous the signaling has been if you consider advertising spend on racial justice messaging right and you take all the spend from 2018 add it to all the spend from 2019 multiply that sum by 5 you get to one month of ad spend on that topic on 2020 right that's how much the message has been amplified 
right? So there's been a tremendous amount of signaling where people have come out and said, look, this is what we stand for, right? Now, that's just the first step, right? Um, you have to walk the walk if you talk the talk, but that's sort of the rest of the story, right? So uh, the first one was signaling. The second is essentially some version of flexing your muscle, right? Now, the easiest way to do this is you write a check, right? Loads of brands have done that. Um, Reed Hastings at Netflix has personally, this is not from Netflix, but he personally, I believe, has uh, donated $120 million um, to the uh, the historical black colleges and universities, right? Um, there are other ways you can flex your muscle. So as you probably know, I live in Cincinnati. Cincinnati is PNG town, right? Um, and it's not just PNG. You're surrounded by an ecosystem of suppliers that support PNG. Now, Mark Pritchard, the, the chief brand officer at PNG, has released a four-point manifesto, right? So this is kind of the signaling and the communication. And chief among it is, look, if you want to do business with us, you have to be a certain way, right? We're going to flex our muscles and make our suppliers comply with certain standards in the racial justice, social justice space, right? Another example of flexing your muscles, we've all uh, quite familiar by now with uh, the Washington Redskins, right? Large part of that is FedEx flexing its muscles, right? FedEx had the stadium naming rights, spent upwards of $200 million. And they said, look, you know, we will exert pressure on the team to get the name changed, right? So that's the second piece. These are brands exerting their muscle to make others change. The third category, and I think this is the most crucial one, is, and, and I termed it brands um, that are being the change, right? So be the change you want to see in the world. This is when you actually do something different in your business to reflect the changes that you want to make, right? So Sephora, for example, said, look, we will set aside 15% of our shelf space um, for brands that come from sort of minority owners or black-owned uh, businesses. Wyden and Kennedy, um, ad agency, said that, look, from now on, we will only have staff and clients who believe that black lives matter, right? And they've said, look, if you're a client and you cannot support this position, we will do our best and find you another agency. It just won't be us, right? So they're changing the way that they do business because that's the way for them to demonstrate that kind of credibility, right? Now, there are a couple of other examples. I mean, the big ones, the Ben and Jerry's of the world and so on, um, but they've been doing that for a while. These are sort of specific examples of responses that brands have come up with to address this current climate. And have those been authentic responses because if they you know like you mentioned ben ben and jerry's i mean they have been supporting black lives matter for years and it's core to their fiber but some of these other brands that you mentioned are these new moves or is this grounded in being authentic or what's sort of happening here so this is a very troublesome question that most brands don't want you to ask right um 
think about one of the poster children of this movement, right, Nike. And Nike, give them credit, has been quite consistent. You know, they started off with the, the whole kneeling program and Colin Kaepernick, um, and they've stayed con- consistent. They released a video saying, you know, in this one case, just don't do it, right? But that's all well and good. But Nike has a pretty checkered history, right? I mean, if you go back to their labor practices and sweatshops, uh, gender discrimination, sexual harassment, right? And as someone pointed out, um, for all the business that they do with African-Americans, for all their endorsements from African-American sports people and so on and so forth, there is not a single African-American on their entire leadership team, right? So, you know, if you want to poke holes, there are holes to be poked, right? Um, This is true of a lot of brands. I gave you the example of Sephora, right? And I and I sort of hailed them as doing something great with this 15%. They've had problems in the past as well, right? They've had, uh, you know, sort of issues in the store and they've had to do training around it. Um, another great example is Adidas, right? And and I, I like to find examples of brands who just did not discover Black Lives Matter in June of 2020, right? We're really looking for brands that have a history of working in this area without provocation. Again, we know Ben and Jerry and so on, but there are other little examples as well, right? And these are small one perhaps, but effective. So Adidas, which again is not blemish free, right? It's been in the news, it's been accused of racism, particularly in sort of in its European offices towards its American group and so on and so forth. Set that aside for a moment. Adidas has been working for a long time with high schools, to get them to change their mascots away from these Native American symbols, right? And they've said, any costs that you incur as part of that movement, we will help you defray. So they're, you know, they're, they're putting their money forward, right? So this has been happening well before you know, George Floyd, right? Um, another little example. So most people have read about Aunt Jemima in the news, right? Um, you know, Quaker has been quite obdurate about it. it. You know, they've held out for a long time. Um, and really, this, this is sort of, they've kind of finally said, okay, fine, we'll change it, right? There's been a lot of pressure for them to do it. If you look at Lando Lakes, um, like Quaker, and, and I did not fully elaborate, but uh, Quaker on Jemima, the, the, the iconography on that brand is considered troublesome and offensive by many, hence the controversy. Um, Lando Lakes um, featured uh, uh, American Indian iconography that many people considered to be troublesome. They've been working on changing that and they have moved away from it well before we entered the summer of 2020, right? So, They've been doing it not in response to a sudden tsunami of social justice, but because they've believed that it's the right thing to do. Now, they may have come down a meandering road to get there, right? Maybe it hasn't been swift, but give them credit for doing that at least, right? Plenty of brands have not done it. What's your advice to brands that have 
taken a bit of a slow road or in fact made past mistakes, which presumably many have done, is there a way in your framework or even just in your conversations with clients and non-clients to authentically discuss past mistakes openly and talk about a plan moving forward? Have you seen that done successfully? Yes, I think that's absolutely essential. Um, because you have to clear the air before you move on. And if you don't do it, even though you may be acting um, with all serious intent, I think that intent may be misunderstood or mislabeled um, if you have skeletons in the closet, right? So a great example of this is Coca-Cola, where the chairman and CEO got on a town hall just this summer um, and amongst many things said that, look, we were involved in the largest class action discrimination lawsuit in 2000. And it was one of our gravest mistakes, right? He acknowledges it. He's also very transparent about where they stand in terms of diversity and inclusion within Coca-Cola, right? He shares numbers. Now, mind you, most brands will not do that. If you see brands sharing statistics about their employee base, most of it does not talk about leadership, right? I mean, think about think about investment banks, think about you know, big consulting firms. Um, if you look at the entire organization, you might get a gender race break, breakup that may even seem reasonable. But now if you look at the partnership in these elite consulting firms, in these elite investment banks, that's going to be a lot more lopsided, right? Now, all credit to Coca-Cola. Uh, they say, look, this is the distribution of employees, of African employees, uh, African-American employees in Coca-Cola, right? So for example, um, I, the, the data says that there's about 13% of African-Americans in the US population, right? In Coca-Cola, actually there are 19%, right? So they're overrepresented. However, if you look at folks with a college degree, right? That's 10% in the African-American set. In Coca-Cola, the leadership is only 7% African-American, right? So it's, it's overall as a company, Coca-Cola is ahead, but they're lagging in terms of leadership. Now, mind you, 7% is actually not that bad. The overall average in corporate America, if you look at senior executives, is around 3%, right? Um, so Coke is a good example of saying, look, you know, we screwed up big time. Right. I mean, this was the largest discrimination lawsuit, but by acknowledging it and by recognizing it, we can move ahead. Right. Look at uh, look at a different category altogether, financial services. Right. So there is a lot of literature around banks um, being involved in discriminatory lending practices. Right. And it's a particularly serious problem because it it simply perpetuates poverty. Right. You really have not seen a financial service organization come out and say, yes, we take responsibility, okay? There is no shortage of banks who have said things about Black Lives Matter. Some of them are quite dramatic, right? Yet, for the most part, no one has really owned up to their role in the process, right? Now, I say this not just to chastise banks. I think there's possibly an opportunity 
for the right kind of financial services brand to come out of this and say, look, we recognize what happened, right? We may or may not have played a part in it, but we acknowledge that happened. And now we will be a different kind of bank for you, right? And that's particularly important. And this ties back to the discussion we were having before. If a financial service organization goes to, let's say, a Hispanic audience and says, look, you know, historically, there have been some problems in the way we have engaged with you, and we will redress that and we will change things and move forward. That's not multicultural marketing. That's not Hispanic marketing. That is doing the right thing for everyone, because it doesn't matter if you're Hispanic or not. There is an expectation that that bank will do right by everyone. Right. So in a lot of these situations, um, so number one, I think there is a need for brands to own up if they need to have if if they are to have a clean slate and move beyond. Um, and I think number two, if that doesn't happen, there's an opportunity for certain other brands, more innovative brands, um, you know, more insurgent brands to come out and really claim that mantle. And say, look, there was something wrong, and you know what is done is done. But we will be much better from now on. I mean, obviously, the conversation we're having to date is at a brand level, very strategic in nature, very core to the fiber of an organization. But there's an operational reality here that brands have to recognize. It's not merely a statement. It's not merely an ad campaign. But it's bringing it through to the customer experience and connecting those dots and the employee experience too. So maybe you could comment on connecting the strategy of the brand to what's happening on the ground. As important as it is for a brand to come to some kind of resolution um, around what values to anchor around, what their position is, they also have to look ahead and understand what's going to happen when the rubber hits the road, right? So if you take a certain position, that is going to ripple through the organization. The more complex, the more distributed the operation, um, you know, the, the more this can become a problem, right? So let me give you an example to bring this to life. Let's say as an organization, um, you take the position that Black Lives Matter, right? Now, say for a moment that you're Taco Bell and you have an employee in one of your restaurants wearing a Black Lives Matter mask because of COVID. And a customer comes in and takes umbrage and there's an altercation of some sort. And then you fire the employee. Right now, this is exactly what happened. Taco Bell fired an employee for wearing a mask that said Black Lives Matter. Now, this sort of you know, fiasco kind of unfolded and the employee was then later reinstated. But it was obviously a wrinkle that no one had thought of when they had arrived at this positioning and when they had sort of boldly transmitted it through their marketing communication, right? So now this brings us back to something that I write about and I research all the time, which is you have to align your brand and your brand promise with your CX or, and, or your customer experience, right? Um, you cannot see this as a marketing exercise. That's not what it is, right? The, it doesn't end as soon as you've got your website done or you've got your video out on YouTube, right? This is 
far-reaching implications. So the right way to do it is really do it in a core team that's representative of all the functions in the organization. Have everyone sort of go through the thought exercise of what does it mean for me? What does it mean for my group? What does it mean for my retail organization? What does it mean for my call center? And so on and so forth, right? So I say sweat the details, right? Play this thing all the way through and make sure that you are ready to align your brand with your CX and that you're really prepared and committed to standing by what you have designed. Thanks for joining us today, Tapanjan. My pleasure. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.